0: Hello, and welcome to episode 50 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. This is your co-host, Cricket Lou, along with...
1: Matt Larson. Hello, everyone. And today we have a special guest, another special guest. We found that this is a format we like, so we're just inviting more and more people to be on the podcast. And today we have Dan York from the Internet Society. Welcome, Dan.
2: Hey, great to be here with you guys.
1: So do you want to tell us, I guess... A little bit about yourself and why you're here, aside from we invited you. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it was a Monday afternoon, you know, hey, why not just go talk about DNS, right? So my, uh, I guess I could say my background with DNS started back in, uh, I guess, in the, probably the late 80s, early 90s, as I was starting to get online, doing a lot of stuff with different kinds of systems. And, and I got interested in the whole idea about, uh, you know, identifiers and and the directory lookup function of DNS and pieces like that. And then in the early 90s, I was doing a lot with, um, in, I guess you'd say corporate training. Corporate, uh, I was managing a training firm that was doing a lot of, uh, well, we were actually teaching a lot of the financial firms in Boston about what this internet thing was all about and electronic publishing and other pieces and stuff like that. And then I wound up doing a good bit with Microsoft, um, like Windows NT training and stuff like that. And I was always working the the internet technologies into there. And talking about uh, DNS and, and how it really worked, how it really worked, versus what the books were telling us, the Microsoft books, et cetera, and the pieces that were there. And, and then I wound up getting into Linux and, and worlds with that, and, and DNS was a part of that. wound up writing a couple books in the, in the late 90s around networking essentials and, and pieces like that that, that had DNS and, and as part of it. I mean, obviously, it was much broader, but DNS has always been this kind of recurrent theme of the stuff that I was doing and stuff and then i wound up going off into voice over ip land for about 10 years doing a lot of work in that space and and then ultimately came to the internet society in 2011 to join a project that was created here at the internet society to help accelerate the deployment of technologies such as ipv6 dnssec uh, secure bgp tls those kind of things and so i came it was it was very cool because i came back to my DNS and Internet technology roots that have been there before, and so I started building out what is now known as the Deploy 360 portal that the Internet Society has, which has all sorts of different kinds of tutorials and resources, and an ongoing blog that has uh, news items and stuff about DNS security and DNS sec and pieces like that. And you know, woven into that has been a lot of work with uh, with the ITF in various different parts of. Um, the, the DNS Operations Working Group and um, the deprive Working Group, some of the other pieces around there, not contributing drafts as much as commenting and, and helping and working on different parts of things and then speaking at a lot of different events around DNS security and trying to raise people's awareness that this whole thing called DNSSEC is out there. What does it do? What does it work with? How does it work? What does it do? Why should they care? All of those things and uh and, and it's it 's been a pretty amazing journey i'd say over these last five years now about it's coming up on two years ago actually i stepped I changed my role a little bit more with the internet society where I joined the the communications team where a lot of my work is look is focusing on how the internet society speaks to the rest of the world and, and works with you know our various audiences and a lot around our our blogs our websites, and how we create content articles pieces like that but Along with that, I have a smaller part of my role is still focused around DNS security in particular. And with people from ICANN, Julie Headland and some of the others, Russ uh, Mundy from Parsons and others, I'm kind of one of the coordinators of the DNSSEC workshops that happen at every ICANN event. And we have another one coming up at the ICANN 58 in Copenhagen here in March. And so yeah, I was
1: going to mention that you've done those for some time yeah
2: well it's it's really been this this five years that I've been part of the internet society that's been a, a role that i've I've very much enjoyed we've you know it's It's a great opportunity where you get to bring these really incredibly intelligent people together and um, you know and, and and be able to have them talk about this really interesting stuff that's happening i mean you know for those of us who find DNS interesting, right, if you're, which I hope is anybody listening to this podcast, because if not, why are you listening? I, I would oh, think otherwise they're in you know, trouble. Yeah, Pretty assuredly. It's,
1: yeah, yeah I mean, you It's know. like the announcement on the plane. If you're not going to Boston, you need to get off <laughs> right, the plane. Right,
2: exactly. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of people in the world who find that DNS is sexy and cool and everything else, and, you know, and then there's the 99% of the rest of the world, right? But for those of us who are in that, we're in that 1% or whatever. <laughs> we're, uh, you know, we're pretty hardcore on that. So, But it's been a lot of good work. And then we also do some other things. We publish the DNS depl- uh, DNSSEC deployment maps that uh, Steve Crocker originally started with his <laughs> Shinkerto organization. And then we took those on and we, Internet Society, but it's really me, publish those on a weekly basis and uh, do some other things. We d- just recently came out with a state of DNSSEC deployment report, which I could talk about. And so that's it's kind of a bit of the, it's where I'm at. Yeah, camp. why don't Yeah, we'll
0: tell Why don't you tell us something about uh, the latest? I'm I'm interested. We used to do as part of a, a annual survey, we'd look at DNSSEC deployment. In fact, the 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 person who really headed up that effort, Matt was was Dwayne Wessels back when he was with the oh, Measurement yeah. Factory. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. I remember. Yeah. So so please uh, illuminate us. I'm interested to hear.
2: Sure. So we, uh, you know, in over the past five years, as we've pushed out this Deploy 360 program, you know, one of the things we offered on the site, and and people can get to it just at www.internetsite.org slash Deploy 360. It's that simple to get there. And on that site, we've had a number of different resources, tutorials, things like that. And we've also had a page full of statistics. And one of the challenges that we've seen with DNSSEC is that there's a, there's a lot of different statistics that are all over the place. You know, everybody's got different statistics for different things. You know, VeriSign has some for their zones. You know, PowerDNS has some for the things that it's involved with. You know, um, ICANN has some statistics in different places as well. And it's kind of all over the place. APNIC, Jeff Houston's been running a number of different things. And mm-hmm. so the challenge we always had was that um, – that you couldn't easily tell somebody where to go and look to find out, like, what's the state of DNSSEC because, um, you know, you just couldn't. It was all over the place. Well, you can go look for validation numbers at APNIC, and if you want to see what's happening with .gov, you go to NIST site, and if you want to see the Brazilian numbers, you go to, you know, CGI.br, and VeriSign has it for .edu, and, and uh, PIR's got some for .org, and, you know, so on and so forth. It was, you know, it wasn't there. And I think over the past couple of years, too, we've seen there are certainly some critics of DNSSEC who are very, uh, you know, happy to go out there and crow about how no nobody uses DNSSEC and it's terrible and it's awful and we should just all dump it and go do something else. And so uh, I guess about a year ago, actually it was about two years ago, we started to say we, we ought to just collect this all into a document, into a report, into something that we can just say, here's the state of DNSSEC at this moment in time. And then it becomes something that we can point to, we can to talk about we can say you know yeah so yeah nobody uh, you think nobody deploys it well actually looks go look here and you can see that in fact in some parts of the country some parts of the world in particular like europe there's a heavy amount of deployment of it in different places and and so we we created this report it took us a while to get there but now we did it for this year in 2016 and then i'm it's a commitment from the internet society's part to continue it through 2017 and, and on an ongoing basis to try to you know, draw this this line to show that this is what uh, this is where we're at each year, um, and you know when you put it all together, you know it's it's like anything that any of these kind of technologies that are out there that are deployed for reasons that are really around making the internet more trusted. You know, they're they're very spotty or you know it's it's unevenly distributed, right? It's it's in different parts of things in different places. If you look at some like in uh, in Europe. You know, you've got over two and a half million domains signed in the dot zone. You've got over 50% of all dot CZ domains on the country code side of things. Then, of course, you know, you look at like com and you've got under one percent, although that's mm-hmm. over, you know, that's over 600,000 domains or so that are out there in some ways. So it's, you know, it's spotty on the signing side. On the validation side, it's really interesting. I, have either of you looked at Jeff Houston's stats lately?
0: Uh, yeah, I've, uh, sure. I've, I've read his stuff, yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. So he's got some really interesting stats that he's, he's been maintaining through his, various, his program. And they show you know some, some changes that are happening on the validation side because maybe we should back up on that for people who are new to DNSSEC. Uh, DNSSEC is all about ensuring that the information you get out of DNS is the same information somebody put in. So it, it, it involves two sides. One is that your recursive resolver that what you use to go look up your DNS records, that has to do some checking, the validation part of things. It has to check and see, are these records correct? Are they signed correctly? And the opposite side is that whoever is publishing stuff in DNS has to go and sign them. So it's a two parts, and, and they're, they're two different pieces, because you could go, anyone listening to the show could go home and enable validation and start checking domains today, and you could check and see that information is correct. The signing if, side they, may, if
0: they ran their own recursive name servers.
2: If they, yes, if they ran. Well, who, who doesn't? Well, doesn't I, everyone? Everyone
0: <laughs> listening to our podcast probably yes, does. Probably,
2: this is probably a self-selected odd bunch because many people here probably are running their own recursive resolvers on their own uh, systems or whatever else. But, yeah, you know, so if you can change it on your resolver, to be correct there, uh, you know, you could turn this on and be able to start checking that. And then separately, you can look at what's involved with signing it. But that's when we start looking at statistics for DNSSEC. We have to look at both sides because they're two different pieces of the puzzle, and uh, and Jeff's been really the one who's had the most uh, the most stats that we can look at on the validation side. There's been a number of others who've done different kinds of um, experiments or or tests or statistics with, say, uh, RIPE Atlas probes, for instance. They've used those to go and determine. Validation levels. Other people have done different kinds of s- systems, but they haven't done it on an ongoing basis. So it's not something that uh, that you can know, you know, from day to day to day. Whereas Jeff keeps his stuff running there at AP Nick Labs on a on an ongoing basis. And
1: well, it's also very hard to measure validation because you you really have to know what the end users doing, right? You, it's if you've got access to authoritative server traffic, you can see what the recursive servers are doing, and, and sort of make a good guess whether or not they're doing validation, but you don't have any visibility to the population behind them. So, well, I shouldn't say you don't have any visibility. It's very difficult to infer how many people are using a recursive. So unless you have actual end-user data, which Jeff has via the uh, Google Ad mechanism that he's developed, you know, that that's really the only way to know from a user's
2: perspective. Right, I, you know, right, and that's and that's the challenge, right? Oh, go ahead, Cricket, I heard you say
0: I was just going to say I I I've, I'm a real admirer of the the techniques that Jeff uses in order to in order to test validation. I mean, you can't just um, you know set up your your own authoritative name server with signed data and and. You know, be at all sure that somebody is actually validating your data, you, you can tell, for example, whether um, a recursive name server that queries your authoritative has set the DNSSEC OK bit, but you don't actually know that they're going to be using it to do any kind of validation. I mean, bind name servers set DNSSEC OK by default now, whether or not they do validation. Um, but he has a very, a very clever technique where they, they deliver ads, as, as Matt said, via Google's ad network, and if I remember correctly, they have uh, various domain names that need to be resolved in the ads in order to provide content. And those domain names are in zones that are variously unsigned, correctly signed, and signed but broken deliberately. And right. so they can measure, uh, based on the combination of what gets served from the, from the web servers, what the state of the recursive name server is. If it, if it for example, does not fetch... Um, the portion of the ad that's being delivered from a deliberately broken zone—that's a strong indication that the recursive name server is actually doing validation. For example,
2: right. And and he's yeah. I mean, it's a it's a brilliant system on one part, and, and that he's using this. And so he sends these. You know, he uses Google's ad network, and and it's funny because he'll tell you at the presentations that he does at various different events, he'll be like, you know, now he's like, if you see those ads, don't click on them because we actually don't want people <laughs> to click on them because we have to pay. But just the presence of the ads in in the in the uh, w- browsers, etc., help send them back this data. And you know, I, I think there's some, will have some challenges long term as people as increasingly use ad blockers and other stuff like this. But, but uh, anyway, in the meantime, he's using it. He's doing it. Uh, he's got some tremendous capability out there. So, so in his stats, which you can get to if you go to, uh, well, it's if you just Google. Do a Google search on APNIC labs, but it's stats.labs.apnic.net if you really care. But he does, he does this for DNSSEC and for IPv6. And what you see is, is right now the global level of validation of, of the number of DNS queries that are validating is around 14%, 14 to 15% or so globally that's out there. <laughs> and, that, and that's across everything. Now, but it, it, it varies widely. In different parts of things, because, for instance, in in uh, in North America, uh, for instance, it's about twenty six percent or so that's happened in there. And Jeff, being being Jeff, and, and how he is, he makes his stats. I mean, it's fun if you're if you're into this, if you're a networking geek and you want to look at this kind of thing, you can dive down into the individual ASs, the individual you know zones, and be able to see what. What, uh, well, it's all AS's, it's all based on that, as far as which network operators are actually, you know, doing what and doing that kind of thing. So, for instance, with the United States, because we're, I'm, I'm here in that space, I can look inside there and I can see that I say, as I'm waiting to pull this up right now, it says transferring. Oh, well, we'll wait for a moment while we do that. I'll skip ahead to, I'll jump to Europe. So, I'll come back to the US. In Europe, for instance, um, you can see the, the range of, this is the moment, of course, my browser sits there giving me the rainbow <laughs> spinning thing. It's like, come on, man. So in Europe, you get different ranges from the, uh, well, from the, the Faroe Islands, all right, which have 87% uh, validation of all the samples that were there to Sweden mm. with 81% validation happening out of Sweden, Iceland at 77. You know, going on down, all the way down to where you get to countries like, um, Austria at about three percent, and uh, I don't even know where this is. Svalbard and John, Jan Mayen Islands,
1: <laughs> apparently North Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah Svalbard.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a Norwegian Norwegian run island. That's, well, that's way off the coast of 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 uh, Norway, isn't it?
1: Way in the middle of nowhere in the North. Wherever Atlantic. it is, yeah. Jeff
2: only got six samples off of it, and and oh, none terrible of validated. So. <laughs> Anyway, but...
1: All six people living on Svalbard.
2: <laughs> That's right. They were all looking at that. But, uh, but anyway, the point is, you know, it, it ranges widely. And, and Sweden, for instance, is, uh, we know from conversations there, it's really they've, a lot of their ISPs have enabled DNSSEC validation on their networks. And so it's not surprising to see an 81% validation rate there in, in that. Uh, Jeff also does something interesting because, of course, Google's public DNS goes and uh, supports dnssec validation so if you're using dns uh, google public dns you're getting validation happening now some he includes that information in his stats and some countries will you look at this and you see they have very high levels of google public dns like i'm just jumping to um, africa and liberia uh, 87 percent of the samples that that uh, Jeff took were, were validated or were, you went through Google's public DNS. So what you're looking yeah. at there is probably most of the ISPs in, in, in Liberia have basically just configured their systems to go and use you know, Google's public DNS for name resolution. Um, and, yeah. you know, and and it's, it's interesting because you get a sense of what's happening there now, I mean, either the ISPs or the users in that area, whatever it may be. But you see that in some parts of the world where they'll have a high percentage that's validated by Google Public DNS, indicating that in that country, probably a lot of that, they're not running their own recursives. You know, the ISPs aren't doing that. They're just simply saying, you know, go use Google. Right.
1: Yeah, if I'm understanding your, uh, let's see, this is page 10 of your 2016 DNSSEC deployment report, Dan, that I'm looking at. Um, There's a chart there that shows by region the percent that validates and the percent that uses Google Public DNS. Right. And really, if you if you look at the entire world, it looks like as you said, almost 15 percent uses or does DNSSEC validation, but just over 14 percent uses public DNS. So, we really have Google Public DNS to thank for the large majority of the validation that's happening worldwide. Mm-hmm.
2: That's well, right. y- yes, yes, and no, because again, it, it really it depends. I mean, yes, overall, you're right; it, it does have a lot on under- right. Overall, for yeah. sure, yeah. But
1: it, I mean, there are obviously there are gaps, or not right. gaps, but exceptions like Comcast in the U.S. Yep. And,
2: yeah. And then that's it. If I'm if I'm back into there, you know, like in uh, in, Com- in the U.S., uh, you know, you see a lot of the AESs are, are doing that. And you scroll down and you see that, you know, like there's 90, uh, 98, 100 percent validation happening inside of many of the of the networks in the United States. And in you know, like Cloudflare has 100 percent validation happening and, you know, zero percent Google public DNS using, you know, Comcast, some others in that kind of the space on that. But, um, but, yeah, it is this thing that's, that's happening in this, in this region. And if you look at Europe, you'll see that some of the countries like Sweden, uh, again, uh, Estonia, Slovenia, uh, Norway, you can tell by the low amount of Google PDNS and s usage that, that, that all their ISPs are doing validation, basically. So you're mm-hmm. getting a, a, a large amount of that. And then in other parts of the world, I pointed to Africa, Asia is similar in some places, too. You get a lot of um, you know, usage of Google which is interesting from a larger perspective, just thinking of the centralization that happens there.
1: Oh, yeah, they're a huge, huge force now in the DNS. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, All right. so that's the validation side. And, and it, you know, it's, it's interesting for people who want to go take a look at that. And then the signing side is really, there's a lot of different statistics that are out there. We talked about some of that in the report, uh, You know, just as far as pointing out some of the, the statistics. And again, it ranges widely, right? I talked about some of that at the beginning. In some cases, you know, you've got like 90% of, of .gov domains are signed, uh, largely because there's a mandate from the U.S. government that thou shalt sign, um, which you might ask, well, what about the remaining 10%? But, you know, details, details. Uh, and then, you know, it goes on into a, a, wide, a wide range of different kinds of, um, of sites and services. Rick Lamb, actually, with, uh, with, with ICANN, has a site up that goes and shows the, the number of domains that have been signed and the total amount that are in there and the percentage sign. He's got this, this uh, statistics site, which we link to from our statistics page on the Deploy360. It gets you a good view into kind of what's happening there. So it's, it's pretty neat. Like right now, as I look at it right now at the moment, again, um, the Netherlands has the most signed domains with two and a half million, followed by Brazil with close to a million. Um, and se.se has about 60, like 677,000, com. you go on from there, but it's pretty cool. Some interesting stuff happening. Hmm. The growth is, you know, the growth is continuing. There's a nice growth path that's been happening out there. So just got to keep letting people know it's there and interesting and what problem it solves, which we should pause too and talk about that. One of the interesting things that the report brought up and we talked about in this was one of the interesting use cases for DNSSEC, which was not entirely expected, I have to say was uh, in securing uh, email, of all things. And it comes into the fact that there's no really great way to do server-to-server encrypted email to get the keys. And so Dane, which is, we could have a whole discussion on that, but basically the idea is you could put a fingerprint of a TLS certificate into DNS and then sign that with DNSSEC and be able to assert cryptographically that this is the TLS certificate or the, or the CA that signs it or whatever. You can basically say, this is the cert I want you to use. Dane turns out to be really useful in uh, email-to-email and server-to-server email encryption to enable the the passing of key material. And so uh, this has become quite, uh, quite, quite heavily used in some ways, in particular Germany. Germany has taken off with it to the point where you can actually find uh, German email providers which will advertise that they that they protect their email with DNSSEC and Dane I, I had to you know, as a DNSSEC guy I had to laugh when I first saw this. I was like wow, this is pretty cool You know somebody's actually putting up an ad talking about <laughs> DNSSEC and Dane. Whoa, what's no. happening
0: now with well, DNSSEC? I think you can, <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm like, yeah I think you can draw a line back to Edward Snowden for that one.
2: Well, yeah I mean some of this right, you know all of these things are going on and so um, the, the the German um, Basically kind of, it, it's similar to NIST, but it's not quite. But it's German standards, German uh, security protection, et cetera. They came out with guidelines for secure email, which indicated that people should use Dane for, uh, for the encryption of, um, of email certificates or of, use, of enabling that. And then NIST came out uh, just a couple months ago here in the United States with their own secure email guidelines, which uh, strongly encouraged people to look at Dane um, as a mechanism for going and providing certificates again for server-to-server to, server to server based email, so it's it's kind of funny in one level that that you know this older this email is is coming along as a great use case of how DANE and DNSSEC can be used to provide real business value. Hmm. You know,
1: it's once again email is the killer app. <laughs> yeah, still,
2: <laughs> well, yeah. the other thing, um, if if somebody wants to, if if people are interested, there was a presentation at the last. Um, IEPG meeting, which is the, it's a a group that meets right before the the IETF on the Sunday before looking at routing and looking at uh, operations issues on the internet. Jeff Houston, again, was there doing a presentation about DDoS attacks and um, and other things. And he was pointing out that one of the proposals, one of the drafts that's out there is around aggressive caching of of NSEC records, which is Mm -hmm. the, it's for people who are listening, it's basically the uh, how do I say it easily?
0: Authenticated denial of existence, technically, right?
2: <laughs> right. But I mean, tell that to somebody, that, explain it to me like I'm five. Basically right, saying it's, it doesn't exist.
0: Right, right. It's a way of cryptographically proving that something doesn't exist. and And the key there is that in DNSSEC, if you're returning data, that like is a positive result. Here are the addresses for the domain name that you looked up. You obviously have something to sign. But sometimes a name server has to send a negative response and say what you were trying to look up doesn't exist, and you still want to know that that's the the correct answer. So you still have to have a way to to convey that, and that's what those NSec and NSec three and NSec five records are all about.
2: Man, yeah, you know, that was a pretty good uh, explanation. You ought to write a book about it or something. You know. <laughs>
0: I'm afraid the book doesn't cover NSEC 5. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. Well, Just I, I, as well. So, but, but, yes. But Jeff had an interesting uh, discussion at this last meeting about uh, how aggressive NSEC caching could actually be used to uh, to prevent, if it was deployed on a local level, to prevent uh, some of the, the DDoS stuff that was happening, that was going on. But it requires you to sign your domains. It, but. More than we could talk about here, but I'd throw it out to people to go look for Jeff Houston's presentation at the about aggressive NSEC caching. And it, it yeah. was quite an interesting talk about uh how it could be used for potentially helping with DDoSes.
0: Yeah, there's an there's an Internet draft about that as well. Um if anybody's into reading internet drafts, at least last I knew it was Internet Draft and not yet an RFC. But yeah, it basically it suggests exactly the, the, the same thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and Jeff was building off that and looking at that, but a couple of us were like, "Wow, that's actually a really interesting thing because it, it actually provides a, a solid, in many ways, a solid business reason for looking at how to do this because if you're signing your domain and then doing validation on it um, in different places, you can wind up uh, helping, you know, yet another tool in our toolbox to potentially look at how we can help reduce DDoS attacks."
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it keeps junk off the root, right, if you can, because it allows you to synthesize, it allows a recursive name server to synthesize non-existent names locally rather than having that go to the root or, or wherever right. authoritative server it would have exactly. to go to. Mm-hmm. And it, it also stops you from leaking data, right, because you're, you're not sending queries up to authoritative servers if your local recursive can go, oh, well, I know that doesn't exist because of these NSEC records. And then, you know, if you're if it's a client on your network going to a recursive server on your network, then that query has stayed on your network when without aggressive um, negative caching, it would have left your network and gone to an authoritative server, and someone would have been able to see. aha, I know what they're querying. You're you're leaking information. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. I I think people are not not necessarily that aware of just how much uh, information is leaked through a recursive name server with application of things like the search list, um, and and the, the uh, browser, browser auto-completion and stuff like that, you, you send a tremendous number of queries out to the roots and the com name servers for, you know, foo.company.com.company.com and things like that, which reveals basically to VeriSign or the root operators what it is that you're trying to look up
2: Right, which is a, actually there was another effort that came out of the, the deprive the DNS privacy uh, project uh, in, inside the ITF that was looking at uh, QNAME minimization. And there's mm-hmm. actually, it's now an experimental RFC out there that's looking at, you know, what do you do so that when you're sending it out to, you know, if you're looking for, you know, research.foo.com, why do you have to send that whole thing all the way up to the root? You just need to say, you know, where's .com? And when you talk .com, you don't have to say you're looking for research.foo.com. Why not just say you're looking for Foo? You know, and going on from there so that you're not necessarily broadcasting all that work out there. Um, right, and, no, it's not something that's deployed anyway, but it's more that the the technology has been specified. Somebody could go and and provide that kind of thing, and we may see i don't know we may see more privacy where recursive resolvers or things like that coming out that may go and do that type of thing
1: if i'm if I'm not mistaken uh doesn't unbound support q minimization yes, I'm pretty sure I think it does um, yes. If 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 the Googles are telling me the right thing here, yeah,
2: I think it does because the the dot yes the, the NL Netlab guys are are right on top of this, you know that team is is looking at how do they implement all these kind of things. They've implemented a lot of the the deprive work on uh, on uh, privacy protection for DNS of of putting the queries between your stub resolver and your recursive resolver over, um, you know over TLS, so that you're mm-hmm. encrypting that to get confidentiality in your dns queries on the route out to the you know they've they've implemented that kind of stuff and some of the work that they're doing and stuff too so at at every hackathon and i would invite people too that uh, if they're interested in this kind of stuff the upcoming ietf meeting in march in chicago there will be a a hackathon the week before or the week week weekend before the saturday and sunday and there's always a good uh, a dns team there that is working on um and you both know many of the people who are there, but it's it's the a lot of the crowd that's working on how we go and you know, bring these these uh, security and privacy protections into running code and getting it out there. So a lot of the work that's happened with moving unbound forward has happened sometimes in the in the jumps that happened there at the hackathons. And similarly the get DNS API and some other pieces are out there. So if you're in Chicago.
1: <laughs> all right. Well thanks Dan for all of that. Um, I think we should answer a question or two, don't you think? The <laughs> well, well it is technically
0: like it. the Ask Mr. DNS
1: podcast, so <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I think we have an obligation.
2: There we go. Let's hear
1: So uh, the mailbag is very, very low this time, so we'll make our usual impassioned plea for uh, more questions. But we do have one from uh, Rick Andrews uh, at Symantec, who's a former colleague of mine when I was at VeriSign, and he was at VeriSign before Symantec bought VeriSign. And so he asks, uh, he said, the certificate authority community has noticed that we get a lot of requests for certificates whose fully qualified domain names contain underscores. Uh, And he says in the subdomain part, not the registrable part. So I think he means like, you know, underscore foo.foo.com. And in fact, we've issued maybe millions of certs with underscores in the name, but there doesn't seem to be any RFC that sanctions the use of underscores in subdomains. Are you aware of any specs that allow underscores? It seems to us that customers really want to use underscores, and they might be burdened if you said, if we said, you can't have underscores because the RFCs don't allow them. What do you think?
0: That's a. This is sort of an, an age-old question. Um, do you, Do you remember the the sort of prohibition against underscores in
1: host names, Matt? Well, well, yes. That's what I was going to yeah. say. This really comes down to the difference between a domain name and a host name, and they're, right. they're not the same thing. And and that's where this all Comes down to right, and
0: and in fact, there has never really been a prohibition against underscores in domain names generally. But for a while, there was uh, a prohibition against underscores in domain names that represented hosts, so that were effectively host names. And I believe, if I if I remember correctly, the reason of the reason for that prohibition was um, it had to do with the way that certain stub resolvers processed underscores. It was it was because of a vulnerability and not because of any good reason. Um yeah right that's
1: that's sort of sounding familiar, but I, I actually did a little uh little RFC spelunking uh before this. I, I decided to buck <laughs> our usual trend of going completely from the hip. I actually you know did research. Whoa. And if you go back you have to go all the way back to nineteen eighty five to RFC uh nine fifty what's the number of what I'm looking at, nine fifty two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that actually defines the syntax of a host name uh, in the old host.txt. Mm-hmm. And then, the, and, and indeed, that's pretty restrictive. That just says uh, letters, digits, and the hyphen. And it specifically says um, you can't start the name with a number. A right, digit. right. And then it's RFC 123, requirements for internet hosts. 11, 1123? 1123? 11.23. Yeah. yeah, that relaxes that that definition. And I think what is a source of confusion is if you look at 10.34, You know, part of the core DNS spec, there's a section in there called uh, preferred name syntax. And that basically says without you know reading you the text, it's section 3.5. Um, it, it basically says this is probably a good idea if you use a restricted set of characters because then certain applications won't become upset. So I think in some people's minds, that's translated into an outright prohibition mm-hmm. when, as Cricket, you said, in reality, you can put whatever you want. I mean, the 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 DNS is 8-bit clean, right? You can put whatever you want right, in a, exactly. a DNS label. Mm-hmm.
2: Anything. Yep. People are putting emojis in there now. Come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, not that we would
0: recommend that. But yeah, certainly underscores. Underscores are pretty commonly used. In fact, if you look yeah. at um, you look at the the specification for the SRV record, which is, gosh, what RFC twenty seven eighty something or other, I think, or something like that. Um, uh, the domain names that own SRV records, uh, by by standard, have underscores at the beginning of their labels so typically you'll see uh for example underscore http dot underscore tcp dot dot example.com or something like that owning a a a series of srv records so it's certainly not the case that domain names can't uh, contain underscores
2: yeah and i was about to say that too all the srv records because again my my world of the voip world we were all about srv records for lookups and things like that and so yeah it was just part of what you had to have Mm -hmm. so to the person asking that you're not restricted
0: yeah although now that i think about it i think that the reason that the srv specifications chose underscores as part of the the standard owner name as part of the format for a standard owner name for an srv record was because they felt that there was little chance that those domain names would collide with existing domain names because people had had not been using underscores for such a long
2: time
1: you know, yeah, so don't go naming your uh, hostname underscore HTTP. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny actually. Back in the earlier days of the web, too, I remember there was a, a general request not to use underscores in in either host names or in or in documents or in uh, you know file names in, in a URL. And that was had a lot to do with very often that it was um, you know when you actually displayed that the the underscore would would line it would uh, go in with the underline that was common in most browsers, et cetera, for a, for a thing so it was unclear so again it was not a hard and fast thing it was one of those you know try not to do that because it may make people not able to fully read your your url or whatever else but uh. you know if this
1: is reminding me of uh, cricket when we were both at hp and and one of the mail relays you named hp.com. <laughs> yeah, you which did. was... And it made people's heads explode. You did? You type host name, and it said hp.com. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we, we had, a, we, we had a, a a relay host. It was actually the big mail relay in and out of um, HP, and so its name...
1: Quote, unquote, big. Yeah,
0: its name was just relay.hp.com, and, and I took responsibility for relay.hp.com. And for the longest time, I lobbied uh my manager hi rick <laughs> i i lobbied my manager for hardware to set up um a parallel mail relay and uh relay was also the primary hp.com name server and so when we finally i we finally got the hardware scared up to to augment relay.hp.com um in fact, I think originally Matt I named it delay.hp.com. Well, I was going to say that if you didn't, if you didn't, because I remember that, and
1: I think that's what led to hp.com. That, and that you said, "Well, all right, if you're not going to let me call it that, then I'm just going to call it something else." Perplexing.
0: Right. Everybody else was everybody else was up in arms. No, no, no. You can't call the mail relay delay.hp.com. But I thought it was very funny, and so yeah when I had to back down, I, I just said, OK, then it's just going to be called hp.com. And <laughs> that was that was even more frustrating, I think, to uh, yeah, I most be. people involved. Yeah, and then eventually I think we lost that because, uh, of course, as the web developed, hp.com, people came to expect hp.com to point to um, HP's website, which actually kind of brings us to our next question, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> it does. It's a perfect segue. We couldn't have planned that any better.
0: Uh, All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read our next question. This comes from uh, my friend Ben Dash, who uh, is is a customer of ours, actually, back in the Boston area. And Ben says, "Um, hope you're well and it's okay to hit you up with a question. Um, You've probably already discussed this on the Ask Mr. DNS podcast, but I haven't listened to them all yet. Please feel free to point me to the appropriate cast. Um, We'll just go ahead and answer it. He says, I get this question almost weekly now and have to keep shooting folks down they want to cname their separately loaded zone to aws or whatever or wherever we can't as the domain name must uh, be an a record so he, i think he means the domain name that's at the apex of the zone the domain name that is the same as the domain right. name of the zone
2: like um, hp.com versus www.hp.com exactly 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 yeah. he says then they point out that other
0: providers are providing the service i know there are security and functionality concerns um what are your feelings on this topic
1: Yeah, that's certainly one that you hear. You hear a lot. I mean, as you know, when I worked for Dyn as a uh, managed DNS provider, that's that's what people want to do. They want to be able to send uh, their main domain name off somewhere else to so like a content delivery network, or you, usually that's what it's what it is. They want to send it into a, a CDN, and the way CDNs work is they want you to C uh, name to them, and then they they take it from there, doing all kinds of various tricks, including DNS tricks, to look at where you're coming from to figure out how to how to resolve you? I mean, Ak- Akamai pioneered that, and uh, but yeah, as you pointed out, DNS-wise, you you can't. If there's other stuff at the apex, you can't. Well, and there always is other stuff at the apex. You can't have a C name, and it's um, it, it, it's definitely an issue. And each managed DNS provider works around it in their own way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. The- yeah. And it- and this is one of those challenges, right, that makes it so difficult with each of the um, of the managed providers having their own mechanism to do that somehow, you know, and they, and they have their own different whatever their marketing name is for it, for uh, for how they do that or how they make it, or they don't even, you know, they just say, yeah, we'll make your, your site just work like that. Um, the, it,
0: the, the common, I think, the common mechanism for solving it is what Cloudflare does, which they call an alias record as opposed to a CNAME record, where they allow you to configure um what looks like an alias or rather a cname record and that it points from the apex of the zone to a different domain name um but what happens is that their authoritative name servers uh before they give out a response resolve the target of the the alias record to an a record or a quad a record or whatever and then return that so it's somewhat dynamic um, And it kind of gets around the prohibition against adding that cname record to the zone apex i think that the real problem with a solution like that though is that um, in order to do cdn based load balancing or load distribution effectively the cdn really wants uh, the the recursive name server that's originating the query to resolve the target uh, domain name to an IP address because they, they want to say, oh, okay, uh, Cricket's in Santa Clara, California, as is his name server. Um, therefore, we're going to give an answer that's appropriate for Santa Clara, California. If the target of the, um, if the authoritative name server on which this alias record uh, is loaded or something close to that name server is actually doing the resolution, then the load distribution or load balancing is not going to be optimal. It's going to be done um, from the perspective of the querying name server, which is next to the authoritative, right?
1: Right. So this is something that uh, EDNS client subnet can help with, right? That already allows the recursive to pass along the, um, uh, the client's source network to the authoritative, and you can basically add a, another hop of EDNS client subnet, right? If, if you get, uh, or you, 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 re- you really just do EDNS client subnet as if you're recursive, because in this case, the authoritative is acting as a recursive, as, as you said. So I'm sort of floundering around, but the, the point is that EDNS client subnet can help in the way it was designed, and that it allows the, uh, the authoritative to pass along, in this case, the recursive's source IP. Right, yeah, right, it, or
0: or an EDNS client subnet option that might have been specified by the recursive.
2: That's true. It could just be transitive and pass it along. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I'm suddenly realizing I need to understand a whole lot more about the EDNS, uh subnet uh, parameter here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty handy stuff. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's,
2: it, it's interesting. I wave at Ben in, from the uh, New Hampshire area. Not that waving works on audio, but I'm uh, I'm in the Greater Boston area, as we call it up here, or as people call it around here, but. It's interesting too, to look at this you know when uh, when the the attack happened against Dyn back in October, you know I had a lot of people that we were I was talking to and, and they were saying well why didn't these why didn't these uh, servers you know why didn't these companies you know like Twitter and some of the others who were down why didn't they use multiple uh, dNS providers you know isn't that kind of one oh one you're supposed to have a secondary dNS and all this kind of stuff and and I explained to them that well, you know the modern managed dNS providers you know are in fact giving you tens or or maybe hundreds of of secondary servers because of their global infrastructure but in this case you you know they, they were using that one provider to do that and and I was asking some of the companies you know like why why aren't you using multiple DNS providers and this actually this what we're talking about right here was came back as one of the reasons why they didn't was because they were using things like effectively a cname at apex Uh, service from a managed provider also geolocation services and other Mm -hmm. pieces that were that tied them basically to the one provider because they could use you know they were using you know Dyne or cloudflare or or, you know pick your provider whoever you're using somebody and and they have their own specific ways of doing that and so to use multiple providers would require you if you want to use those extra services you've got to have some way to synchronize the things between them or something, and, and that just doesn't really exist because in the end right. they're all feeding into CDNs and global load balancers and such, which are doing what you said, Matt, about all the, the magic to go and make it all work across things. So it's interesting that our desire for this convenience in many cases and, and that use of the, just the host name, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't care about www as much. We just want to say InternetSite.org or, you know, whatever. We want to just do that. And, and so our desire for that, though, does then create some technical restrictions based on what, what our infrastructure can look like.
1: Yeah, indeed.
0: Yep, yep, it's, a, <laughs> it's right. a difficult problem, it's a difficult problem. I wonder if anybody will ever s- sort of standard, I, I think that there have been at least, there, there have been efforts to standardize stuff like this, or at least rumblings about standardizing this kind of, uh, this kind of behavior.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. It's not in the economic interests of the people who would have to do all the work, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're a managed DNS provider, there's not really much uh, advantage to you to have your competition be able to have uh, have parity with you, so that people can choose among you.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, Jim. and and it's such a small pool, really, in a large scale of the people who would operate at this level of things necessarily it's not like uh you know it's not like there's millions of them there's you know a smaller number who are actually involved so
1: yeah yeah personally i'm glad that i don't run a big web property cuz i i don't don't have to deal with this this would be i'm sure there are many challenges to that but this would be a significant one in the in you know in the in the race for good performance dns is really important and different managed dns providers have very interesting compelling solutions and to try to harmonize them if you want to do Uh, have multiple providers, which I think you would absolutely have to. And, you know, just for example, to Dine's defense, I mean, I know that Dine, with their larger customers, they don't go in and try to say, well, listen, you really need to use just us because they realize that if you have a large enough operation, it's just a non-starter. If somebody comes in and says, look, I want you to single source with us, you know, they're going to say, no, we've got to have multiple providers. So, you know, Dine, for example, realizes that, but at the same time, it's a lot of work for whoever is using multiple providers to harmonize everything. Yeah. Oh,
2: right. Well, right. Then- you know, and that was it right in, in during that attack. There were multiple companies that were that that did, were using multiple providers, you know, but to your point, they've got to go and do that synchronization between the provider or as Crick and I talked about on the on the webcast last week for IST2, the other option is that you just go to the lowest common denominator and you don't use some of those those fancy services but then you're not getting the benefits that you could get out of that right your resilience of infrastructure wins out over the convenience of the customer that type of thing Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah i told a a story on the the podcast uh, or rather on the the webinar uh matt about a customer of ours this was a customer who was at one of our users group meetings in london and these guys are a, a very very large financial spread betting firm and um After I I made this recommendation about resisting DDoS attacks by sort of not putting all of your eggs in one basket and using either a combination of, you know, on-prem name servers and uh, a DNS hosting provider or two different DNS hosting providers, he said, you know, I actually happen to have exactly the setup that you're describing. Um, And in fact, I am a Dyne customer and I have a few Infoblox appliances out there as my external authoritative name servers as well. He said this was not really uh, part of a strategic plan or anything. It's just the c- configuration we ended up with. Um, and he said because our website is so valuable to us and, uh, you know, most people place orders and things via uh, our website, we have a, a, a monitoring service to ensure that our website is always available. He said over the many hours that Dyn was under attack, he said we dropped a grand total of three probes to our website, and that was it yeah yeah i was there you go i was I, I was impressed it was uh it was a testimonial that I had not sought but I eagerly received
2: <laughs> well and and but again in his case right he's willing to take on the complexity right and to figure that out on their side to make that work across multiple providers and all of that and presumably he's willing to take on the cost right of of having mm-hmm. those multiple providers and the you know and and the staff to do the synchronization all of that and and for his business he may be in a position to be able to do that which is awesome. Yeah. You know? Yep. Hope we answered your question, Ben. <laughs> I think we beat it to death. You, <laughs> yeah, as usual.
1: Well, what do you think? Is that an Honest Days podcast?
0: I'd say. I think this is a, actually a hair longer than our, our usual podcast, which either will it be is, we, a uh, delightful surprise <laughs>
1: or
2: a terrible disappointment to our listeners.
1: We should probably hold off on our on our usual witty, witty banner to wind up.
2: Well, it's because you had me on here and I talked a lot at the beginning. So maybe next time, if you you ever invite me back, I can come on here and not say all that so we can just get right into questions.
1: Or do the witty banner at the beginning.
2: Or, yeah, or do the witty (laughs) banner. All depends on how witty we're feeling at that precise moment in time, right?
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for the update. Thanks for the pointer to the work you're doing with the Deploy 360 program and to your SEC report, end of the year 2016 report. Do you want to give a quick uh, plug for the URL for that?
2: Well, sure. You can just go to uh, internetsite.org slash deploy360. Look, there I did it. I didn't even use the www, but hey, it's you know, <laughs> all. But if you go there to deploy360, you can find a link for the, the, the uh, state of DNSSEC deployment on there. And and you can follow me on Twitter at Dan York or on other social networks that way. And I have a website, danyork.me, that lists my latest writing and audio podcasts and things like that. So... Always glad to talk to people about this kind of stuff.
1: Excellent. So thank you, Dan, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, remember, we do need your questions. The mailbag was pretty, pretty short this week, so it's uh, send your questions to mrdns. That's mrdns at ask-mrdns.com. So until next time, thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks, everybody. Thank you.